If you'll join me in prayer. Almighty Father, as we gather again on your Sabbath day to honor you and worship you as a set-apart day, a day that memorializes your creation, as well as a spiritual creation in your people, we pray that you will continue to be with us as we go through these years of trial and sometimes temptations that we would overcome and that we would be faithful until the end. We pray that you'll continue to watch over all your people. Heal those that have a special need that have cried out for you as our Yahweh Rapha. We pray also that you'll continue to guide us in your word and that we might be one day found faithful when Yahshua comes to return and grab his people from this earth ever to be with him. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Well, it's been my first message, I guess, since the feast. It's a great feast. I think uh, everyone that came would agree. Number 55 for my wife and me. Matter of fact, I met my wife at a Feast of Tabernacles. Margie was there, and, and the rest is history. <laughs> Those who attended the feast this year will recognize the title as the feast theme. The covenant Yahweh makes with his people is a foundational blueprint for his salvation and how we fit into that plan. It is a holy design that only Yahweh could, uh, could give us. His people come to the true knowledge of the Bible through a simple but novel approach Take the word for what it says. Pretty unusual today, isn't it? Most people don't even know what the word says, and the problem is their churches aren't really helping either. So we found that the truth of the scriptures shows the feast days are key. We show that we found that in the New Testament, they kept the feasts as well. Paul kept the feasts, and all the others, the apostles were there. Yahshua especially kept the feasts. And it was, as well as the Sabbath and other feast commands, other commands of the scripture. It's a fascinating and exciting approach in our day. And it is really a joy every time I open the scriptures to study. Uh, For me, Bible study is like a treasure hunt. Can't wait to see over the next hill. We hold two Bible studies a week here at uh, the ministry. It seems like every time we open it up, we dig in, drill into the word, we find new things. You'd think after all these years, we'd pretty much have it under our belts, but no. There are details that we find connect certain truths that we didn't see before. It's amazing. Many of us, upon conversion to the truth, wanted to go out and tell the world, hey, look what the Bible says. I never knew this before. Did you? Were you ever taught this in church? only to find out that most of the world was not the least bit interested. But that never stopped Yahshua and the apostles. They pushed the truth every day, teaching, showing them what it means to follow the scriptures, what it means one day to be in a kingdom that will last forever. The entire Bible is intended to be followed, and all of it is given by inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is Inspired and therefore doctrine, correction, instruction in righteousness. All those things, all the scriptures, Old and New Testaments. That means both. 
Both are salvational because both have the same message, the basic same message. Being the Old Testament was the only scriptures Joshua and his apostles had, what they taught was the Old Testament. Funny that people want to throw it out today. (laughs) Even their Savior and coming judge taught from it. He quoted Torah law some 60 times. There are nearly 700 individual citations from the books of the Old Testament found in the New. If you include references to the Old Testament as well as quotations of it, the number would be over 4,000. 4,000 according to the Expositor's Bible Commentary. The Old Testament constitutes an astounding 80% of the new. 80% of the new. Directly or in shared quotations and references. There are 456 Old Testament passages that talk about Yahshua. 456, according to Adersheim's Life and Times of J.C. If you remove all of the Old Testament from the new, you would simply... Emasculated. It'd be like a house or a yeah, house of cards just collapsing without the New Testament. Without the Old Testament, I should say, the New Testament. In this journey of truth, we've concluded that tradition doesn't square with text. Over and over again, we find discrepancies of tradition that are not in the scriptures, or they contradict the scriptures. For instance, just because the church has been eating swine for 2,000 years doesn't eliminate Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14. Just because the church says Yahshua resurrected on Sunday doesn't make Sunday worship biblical. We must never follow the dictates of tradition, brethren. Never follow the dictates. Or... Dictates of churchmen and church councils when they color outside the lines. And yet for most, the Bible is a confusing mix of disjointed stories and knotted up lessons, and they can't figure it all out. They can't unwind it. So they find the Bible confusing. That's because lots of traditional half-truths, false beliefs, and just plain errors are swimming around in their heads and they look at it and say, I can't. Like a lady said to me, I don't, I don't know how to study the Bible. What do I do? Do I start with Genesis? Do I find a topic? What do I do? I said, whatever works for you. But be methodical. Make sure that you square what you're reading with how you're living. That's the important part. Too many don't understand it, so they just leave it all up to the pastor who just ramrods through some contradictory church beliefs and half-truths. You know, to have a proper understanding of Yahweh's word takes a little bit of impetus. It takes a novel approach today. Take the scripture for what it says and don't interpret it from your past understanding. People tell us that is what they did. They just took the word and started going through it and believing what it said and they ended up with YRM. So you're teaching the same thing that I found. Well, I hope we are scriptural in our teachings. If we're not, we've got to cut those teachings out. Yasha battled the Pharisees and Sadducees and some of their traditions that held more weight for them than any scriptural authority. 
Matthew 23, 23, woe unto you, he said, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. They didn't get it. These ought you to have done and not leave the other undone. Interesting that these Old Testament Jews never questioned mercy and faith, which are Old Testament as well as New Testament concepts. In similar fashion, many today embrace Jewish traditions more than scripture. They focus on Jewish holidays like Hanukkah and neglect the weightier days like tabernacles, Feast of Unleavened Bread, so forth. Even some Jewish observances have pagan roots. You've got to be kind of careful if, uh, if you're not following Yahweh's word. Let's take a look at what the Jews say are the 613 laws. You know, they say, oh, oh, you say you're obedient. Well, do you keep the 613 laws? Trying to, trying to uh, in an effort to entrap you, basically, because they know you don't. But why don't we? Well, have you ever looked at a completed list, which are the 613 based in the Talmud? Because there's no 600, number 613 in the Bible saying, oh, the 613 laws that Moses brought down from Sinai. No, that, that, that is a, a man-made number, and it goes back into a rather convoluted history if you ever looked it up. But uh, we observe the vast majority of Yahweh's commands in the way he intended, but there are some that apply to a different time, to a different way of life. And I want to explain that a little bit. Deuteronomy 22.8 says, to make a low wall about three feet around your roof. Well, that makes sense for flat-roofed dwellers. We were in Israel. We went on several flat roofs, especially at night, looking at the stars and the beauty. I remember in Tel Aviv, it was so beautiful. The sky was just perfectly blue. We were on top of this, uh, this roof of some kind of restaurant or hotel or something. But, uh, you know, you don't want to look down and see about 20 stories down below you and worry about falling off. So the Bible says put a, put a, a little uh, fence around it, a little wall around it. And it makes sense for those in flat roofs, but it doesn't make sense for us. We don't live on our roof. Um, I've fallen off of it a few times, but uh, don't want to do that either. I guess it would be a good idea maybe for me to have a, something, <laughs> something on my pitched roof to keep me from falling off. But that's only because that's where they lived. They lived on their roofs. And it only makes sense that you'd be careful to have a, a, a retaining wall around it. In Leviticus 25.34, Levites are to redeem their homes in their Levitical towns. Their houses are redeemable, but the land is not. Because it was, it was given out to the different tribes and they were perpetually to bring it back, like on the Jubilee, the ownership these statutes were necessary for running a righteous government under Yahweh. They included laws on how a ruler should conduct himself, as well as statutes of governing, political interactions with other nations. They regulated court proceedings and judgments, punishing of criminals, citizen behavior, social interactions and worship. It's all because it was under Yahweh's government, you see, a righteous government. Clearly, many of these are... are uh, 
found in our laws today. That's where they came from. But these laws were given under his theocracy, a government under a mighty one. And their Bible was the Constitution. However, these laws dealing with worship, interpersonal relations between brethren and people, are for everyone. So they apply to everyone. Salvational issues, these laws have determined those apply to everyone. But some of these other things, we'll go, go into some of this. Here's a quick breakdown of major divisions of biblical law and, and examples of each. Part of those 613 laws involves governmental laws. The king must not have too many wives and horses. Solomon, Deuteronomy 17, 16 to 17. The king must not have too much silver and gold. David, Deuteronomy 17, 17. Regulations of houses and walled cities found in Leviticus 25, 29. Well, how can these statutes apply to us? Well, we're not kings now, at least today, maybe someday. How about judicial laws? Appoint impartial judges. Oh, boy, that's a big one. Wouldn't that be great today if they'd follow that one? Deuteronomy 1 and 16. A judicial court must not execute anyone on the testimony of a single witness. You've got to have at least two or three witnesses. There's another one that has caused all sorts of heartache and trouble in our world. Deuteronomy 17 and Numbers 35. Anyone who knows the evidence must testify in a court case. There's a law in Missouri. If you, uh, if you pass a car that's been in an accident and nobody's there, you're obligated to stop to help them. I think they call it the Good Samaritan Law. And that's a good thing, certainly. If you were in that situation, you want somebody to help you, right? Call 911 and all that. You keep all 613 laws. You tell me how in some of these. Now, moral laws we can and must keep. These regulate relationships with fellow man. Exodus 20 and Matthew 22. Don't bear a grudge. Don't go around with a long face and be mad at the world or mad at anybody. Get it out. Get it over with. Leviticus 19.18. Don't wrong anyone in speech. Don't slander people. You leave an assembly, don't go around browbeating that assembly. Just go. If it doesn't work for you, find another. But don't attack and bring it down. Don't curse father or mother. Good night. That's a big one in our day. <laughs> don't curse father or mother. Keep your word. Do whatever comes out of your mouth in that regard. If you say it, do it. Don't forget about it. Do it. Keep your word. Make a promise, you do it. You keep it. That's in Deuteronomy 23, 23. Don't take revenge. If you're angry at somebody, let Yahweh take it. Vengeance is mine, Yahweh says. Leviticus 19, 18. Don't be superstitious. I remember growing up in the paper, they always had... Uh, uh, the, uh, what do you call them? The stars, you know. You're supposed to re read your fortune in the stars. Superstition. These we are to keep. We're, 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 as a people, 
living the truth as much as we can, we keep these. Then there's spiritual law. Observe the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20. We all know that one. Keep the feasts and Sabbath, Leviticus 23. Very plain. Goes through a whole chapter of it, a couple chapters of it. Eat only clean foods, Leviticus 11. Observe the sabbaticals and jubilees. Well, we try as much as we can figure out when they are, especially the problematic is the jubilees were because Israel never really, we have no record they kept them. Or if they did, we don't have a record of it. Uh, that's a problem. But that's in Leviticus 25. Yahweh no longer wants animal sacrifices. Hebrews 10, verse 5. They, those sacrifices simply appointed to Yahshua the Messiah as our sacrifice, a greater sacrifice, who can actually take away sin and not just cover like the animal sacrifice did. Spiritual laws apply to defining what is a marriage. I never thought I'd see the day. <laughs> marriage between a man and a man? What? That's no marriage. Yahweh established marriage, and that's not marriage. Then we have civil law. Order of inheritance, Numbers 27. The firstborn gets so much and so forth down the line. Help a brother with his fallen beast of burden. If he falls into a ditch and he's yanking on him, trying to get him out. I remember we were out hunting one time, and uh, we went uh, across a one of the uh, cows was in the ditch. I mean, up to his here in, in mud, and uh, we tried to pull him out. There was no way. And uh, the farmer came along and had a winch and pulled him out, but he didn't survive. Uh, but we tried. That's what we're supposed to do. Don't overcharge or underpay for an item. Now, this is a big one right now. Prices are so high on everything, you know people are gouging. Oh, well, they're used to paying this high price. I'll just add some more to my, to my goods here, and they'll pay it. They won't say anything. Don't overcharge. Leviticus 25.14. Don't charge a believer interest. Deuteronomy 23.19-20. Houses sold within a walled city may be redeemed within a year. Now, that's not according to our laws today, but that's what the biblical law was. Leviticus 25.29. Some of these are under the scope of man's law as well. There are ceremonial, sacrificial laws that govern worship, Isaiah 11, I'm sorry, 111 through 20. There's all sorts of laws in Scripture, laws of sacrifice and offerings, Leviticus 1 through 7. You know, Paul wasn't what you call an iconoclast. He wasn't there to stomp everything down and break it all up. He became a guiding light for the true covenant believer. Not a lawbreaker, a law remover, a law destroyer. An instance of how the Apostle Paul ministered first to the Hebrew-speaking Jewish element wherever he went is found in Acts 17. Here Paul and his sidekick Silas come to Thessalonica where there is a synagogue of the Jews. Why was he going there? Because they kept the Sabbath, he kept the Sabbath. In verse 2, we read, and Paul, as his manner was, it was his custom, this is what he did, this was part of his life, went in three consecutive Sabbath days. He was a Hebrew, not a Gentile. Growing up as a Jew, he kept and taught seventh-day worship. 
as well as Yahweh's seven annual feast days. He continued doing so even after being instructed and trained by the resurrected Messiah. Isn't that interesting? He kept doing it. Like Peter, you know. Uh, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And in his vision, he was supposed to eat unclean things. He says, I have never, 10 years after Yahshua, I have never eaten anything clean or unclean. Why not? I thought Yahshua removed all that. No, he didn't. No, he didn't. We still eat clean according to the word. Leviticus 11, Deuteronomy 14. The law was still central to life and worship of the believer, even after Yahshua ascended. Another instance is his letter to the assembly at the Greek city of Corinth, 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul connects to our fathers who were in the exodus from Egypt. Why did he bring that up? Oh, that's old stuff. That's Old Testament. Why? Why did he, why did he uh, say, hey, our fathers in Egypt did this as an example for us or as a a sign for us. And he went to the synagogues where there were both Jews and Gentiles. Why were the Gentiles there? I thought, I thought their church day was Sunday. No. <laughs> it was all the same day. It was all the Sabbath. And he never told them to stop worshiping on Sabbath. Hey, guys, uh, you know, the resurrected changed all that, and we don't do that anymore. We worship on Sunday. He never told them to stop doing so. He never explained about any switch in the Sabbath through the resurrection. Both, Jew and Gentile, kept the Sabbath day. So by continuing to teach from the Old Testament as the foundation for New Testament worship, Paul made some people very uncomfortable. Some even went so far, and I guess it even was going on back then. They called his ministry a heresy, or in modern vernacular, a cult or uh, a sect for teaching how he did. In addition, Paul included in his ministry and writings that what he had learned from the resurrected Messiah, Yahshua. Obviously, Paul saw no contradiction with combining fundamental Old Testament truths with what Yahshua taught him. Yahshua taught the same. He wouldn't have taught anything different because, by the way, there was no New Testament at that time. The only Bible they had was the Old Testament. Yahshua didn't set uh, oh, Matthew, Mark, Luke down. So, hey, guys, start, start writing a New Testament widget that I can, I can teach. But the standard of many judges today would say that Yahshua, by his confession, was a heretic. Yeah. Yasha said in John 10.35 that scripture cannot be broken. And for 2,000 years, persistent efforts have been made to break the old away from the new. Claiming that the New Testament was first written in Greek has a powerful effect on just the, the sense of the word. See, they, they'll say, it. well, that's, uh, that's, uh, it's not Hebrew. We're getting away from Hebrew. We're, we're, we're following more of a Greek slant on our faith now, and that leads right on into the Latinized uh, passages, Latinized Bible, the Vulgate, and some of these things. So it, uh, they're trying to break away from this Hebraic flavor, and had a powerful effect on disconnecting it from the foundational Hebrew roots. 
even while historic and linguistic evidence shows otherwise. You can look at the, the text itself and see this. Uh, this is not Greek. Um, Matthew begins uh, with uh, and, 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 which is a Hebraic form of writing, same with Revelation. Obviously, it's clearly from a Hebrew, New Testament, Hebrew, not Greek, but you can't convince uh, the scholars they know better. Anyway, uh, what was practiced in the New Testament by the Savior and his followers is so much Old Testament, you, you can't you have to be a blind man not to see it. In the most damaging of falsehoods ever concocted, Satan said to Eve that if she ate of the true tree of knowledge of good and evil, that she shall not surely die. Just the opposite. He convinced her that she would be wise and powerful and immortal as any supernatural being. That incredible enticement was more than she could resist. This satanic hoax applied to a basic human craving for self-exaltation. And self-exaltation, the desire to make me the center of my worship, has caused untold damage to truth all through the centuries, has caused so much wrong teaching, so much wrong beliefs, that we can be in charge of our own salvation without his, uh, our creator. There was a movement back, don't remember exactly how many hundreds of years ago, called pietism. I was reading about pietism. You know, people say, well, he's pious. He's, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's a holy man or whatever. But that, that teaching spread throughout. That was one of the influences in churchianity that made the truth center on man instead of Yahweh. So they got away from what Yahweh says, and they started pushing man's ideas, man's uh, teachings, man's counsels. It's all, it all figured into it. Someday I'll dig more into that, but I found it kind of fascinating. This is the number one motivation for all heresies that develop before, during, and after Christianity. To be in charge of your own salvation without your creator. The drive to make it all about me breaks the first commandment, which is the most important commandment of all ten. I am Yahweh, your Elohim, which have brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other Elohim before me. Exodus 20. Especially not yourself. You are not Elohim. You do not make the rules. Through the sin of rebellion, our original parents rejected Yahweh's warning and sought to be supernaturally wise and all-powerful themselves through the lies of the evil one. At the heart of such rebellion is the desire to elevate self. Self Self-glorification is the center of all sin, and it's the very heart of many religious heresies. We can make our own rules. We can do it ourselves. Well, you got... uh, uh, Examples in the scripture. Look at the ancient heresies in the Bible that have parallels that exist today. Yeah, we made it clear to ancient Israel that worship of him was not to have any man-made, man-induced features or manipulations. It was to be Yahweh's way exclusively. We have no right or authority to choose our own worship. 
how we will worship. Like people say, well, yeah, you say that, but that's not what it means to me. I don't care what it means to you. What does it mean to Yahweh? What's the message he's trying to get through to us? I don't care about you. You can believe what you want. I believe what Yahweh says. He said clearly in defining Israel's worship, Exodus 20, 23, you shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall you make unto you mighty ones of gold, an altar of earth you shall make unto me, and shall sacrifice thereon your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto you and I will bless you. And if you will make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you lift up your tool upon it, you have polluted it. Why? He didn't want any worship manufactured by man. You're not supposed to form that stone into bricks or whatever. It's supposed to be natural. He stack one upon the other with, uh, without man involving the creating of it. Again, a lesson in true worship Keep the altar, the centerpiece of my worship, pure, without any changes, your own modifications. In other words, don't fiddle with my clear mandates for worship, even down to how you make the altar. If that isn't clear, I don't know what is. The altar of sacrifice was to be totally natural, not altered. In commanding this, he showed that worship was to be completely of Yahweh, nothing furnished or instituted by man or inserted by man. He said in verse 25 that to do otherwise is to pollute his worship. See, if anything man adds to or takes away from pollutes worship, it's got to be purely of Yahweh, purely of him. That's what the new covenant is all about. That's what the covenant is all about, old and new. Have no authority to add. We have no authority to add, no uh, alter anything. The lessons of Israel is that they ignored the lesson. And it's no different today, same old stuff. In Exodus 32, we read that Moses was gone for weeks on Mount Sinai, getting the Ten Commandments and the rest of Yahweh's laws. Meanwhile, back at camp, Israelites were taking matters into their own hands. They convinced Aaron to make a golden calf as the centerpiece of their own sacrilegious worship. Again, man-made worship. Yahweh never sanctioned that, but they did. And when... Exodus 32.1, and when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, they gathered themselves together unto Aaron and said unto him, Up, make us Elohim, see, man-made, which shall go before us. Perhaps it was Moses brought us up out of Egypt. We don't know what's become of him. He could be dead by now. We're sitting here wasting time. The people lacked simple faith, convinced that Moses was not coming back. So what should they do? Well, we'll make our own worship. Worship the way we feel. Worship the way we learned in Egypt with animals. Exactly what they were told not to do. So he fashioned an idol and says, tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. How about that? (coughs) Hold that statement. They dedicated a feast to Yahweh, but it was actually designed to suit themselves. In Matthew 15, 8, the Savior Yahshua quoted Isaiah 29 when he warned of apostasy to come. This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but the heart isn't there. It's far from me. Teaching for doctrine, the commandments of men. Are you able to prove your beliefs from Scripture? 
That's the question. Each of us instructed in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good and right. Rather than sticking closely to Scripture, many have embraced non-biblical doctrines sanctioned by religious leadership. Too bad it doesn't hold any water. Too bad it's not going to get them anywhere if it's not scriptural. When Israel's northern tribes split from the southern tribes, King Jeroboam, fearing he's going to lose his ten-nation alliance, worked to keep those nations up there in the northern part of Israel and keep the northern tribes from going down to Jerusalem in the south. So what was his plan to keep his empire intact? What do you think? How do you think he would do it? Start from scratch? Create some weird religion? Oh, no. Make his worship closely resemble the worship of Yahweh that commanded of Israel. Only with some key differences that would serve his own purposes. 1 Kings 12, 28. Wherefore the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said unto them, It's too much for you to go to Jerusalem. The feast is too far. Behold, your Elohim, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan, and this thing became a sin. For the people went to worship before the one, even unto Dan. Jeroboam had no scriptural authority to set up any kind of worship anywhere. He felt like doing so. Worship was sanctioned only where Yahweh himself placed his name. Notice what else this wicked king did. 1 Kings 12.31 And he made a house of high places and made priests of the lowest of the people, which is the exact opposite of what Yahweh commanded, which were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam created his own priesthood, a clear violation of biblical law. How did he think that was going to fly? How did he think that was going to work? Going directly against Yahweh. Again, it was all about me. It was all about him. He didn't care. As long as he could get what he wanted politically, have a, a nation of his own, he was willing to do anything. Self-appointed men repeat Jeroboam's sacrilege over and over without any legitimate authority. They go out and teach and baptize and usurp all rights and privileges of the ministerial office. No one gave them that authority. They took it on themselves. There's no formal ordinance. Rather, they appoint themselves leaders just as Jeroboam did. But this apostate king isn't finished yet. 1 Kings 12.32, and, and Jeremiah ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah, and he offered upon the altar. He offered upon the altar on a false feast day. Eighth day of the 15th month. Uh, I should say eighth month of the 15th day. Not the seventh month, as Yahweh says. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. He, he placed in Bethel priests of the high places, which he had made. So he established his own counterfeit worship and says, here we go. Jeroboam instituted a religion designed to meet his people's needs for convenience. Oh, you don't, you don't want to go all the way out, out there. Just like one lady said to her daughter, just, just find a local church here. Keep that whatever at the church. Make it convenient. Not right, but it's convenient. 
and his need to, to control the people. So he built two shrines. He exiled, exiled the Levites, the legitimate priests established by Yahweh, and installed in their place a counterfeit. Finally, he moved the scriptural observances from the seventh month to the eighth and eliminated a command. All this because a sin. All this became a sin for Israel, 1 Kings 12.30. We look at the audacity and corruption of this man. We wonder, how could he do that? Well, how could he profane clear biblical mandates in such an overt apostasy? Well, we see it all over today, same thing. He could do it because he had no respect for the one he claimed to worship. He respected no one but himself. He, in essence, worshipped himself. This historical record shows that such heresies that go on did not end with Jeroboam. There was heresy even in the time of the New Testament apostles and afterwards. Did you know that every king of the northern tribes was bad? Not one good king of the northern ten tribes was bad. Well, this is how they started. This is how it began. No wonder. They all had problems. Can't point to one to say this is, a, this is the righteous king. They all had problems. Unorthodox teaching lead to a perversion of true worship early on, even in the New Testament, and the results are still evident today. Why did Paul express urgency that he must by all means keep the feast that comes in Jerusalem? Acts 18.21, not one word was ever said about any changes in, in the commands of following Yahshua, of doing what he taught. In fact, time and again, the apostles endorsed and authenticated Old Testament orders, commands, and practice. You look at a few excerpts like Peter's famous Acts 2 speech when they just realized they had killed the Messiah. Rather than announcing a new regime following Yahshua's ascension with a different set of rules brought by Yahshua, Peter continued confirming Old Testament foundations of the faith. I don't know how much more you need, how much more affirmation that we must follow the whole Bible. The covenant people must follow every word proceeds out of Yahweh's mouth. Paul didn't begin a new religion in his letters to Rome, Corinth, or Galatia. He was simply bringing these Gentiles into the Israelite worship because the covenant was only made with Israel. We want to be part of that. We have to join in the covenant of Israel. Nothing altered in the teachings that Yahshua had given his disciples. They didn't need years of councils and creeds to figure out a new direction under a political design. Well, it was all right there. They had to argue about when Easter was. So, well, they didn't want to fall on Passover, certainly, because they might call it Passover, you know. So we make it a you know, first full moon after, after the vernal equinox and all this. It, it wasn't there. The only reason they would do such a thing is they planned to radically change altar teachings to create their own. The fact that popular dogma developed over many years tells us that something was amiss, something was afoot, something was wrong. There was no need to develop any of these other teachings than what is already there in the scriptures. Why can't man just follow it? 
Why is it so hard? Pride and self-worship. Amazingly, the New Testament warned about heresies. 2 Corinthians 11.4, For if he that comes preaches another Messiah, whom we have not preached, if you receive another spirit, which you have not received, or another good news, which you have not accepted, you might well hear, bear with him. In other words, you might put up with it. So watch it. Galatians 1.6, I marvel that you are soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Messiah unto another proclamation, which is not another, but the same that, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the good news of the Messiah. But though we or any angel from heaven preach any other good news unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. There's going to be a lot of people going to have their eyes opened at the return of Yahshua and say, I, 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 did, I, I didn't know, I didn't know. Well, if you're, if you're totally ignorant, well, then you have, you have an excuse. But if you aren't, Yahweh can see right through you. He can look at the heart. Yahshua warned in Matthew 7, 13, Enter ye into the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There's no salvation in it. It's wide, open wide, easy. Just get on your, get your, on your uh, track shoes and go. It's easy. But it leads to destruction. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. The feasts are the highlight of a believer's walk. I, I really believe it. They're the highlight. It's the time when we all get together. They give us a chance to strengthen our faith and the faith of others and draw strength and spiritual support from each other. That's part of what the feasts are all about. It's not just coming together and singing songs. We had a man from South Africa this year's feast. This man was on fire. He had a, a memorable uh, name, Hercules. He may have pronounced it quite <laughs> a little different, but he was on fire. You couldn't talk to him for five minutes without drawing energy from this man. He was, he was determined to be here. Everybody told him he's not going to make it. He said, I'm, I'm going to... I'm, how did he say it? I'm going to the Feast of Tabernacles in Missouri in America. And the people in South Africa said, you'll never make it. You, you, can't, you can't get a visa. He will never make it. He says, I'm going to the feast. He got, a, I guess, a visitor's visa. Uh, then to get in the country, um, the people that regulate that, uh, there are like five women there, and said, you've got to get a shot. You've got to get a COVID shot. I'm not getting a COVID shot, but I'm going to the feast. Well, you can't get in if you don't have it. Do you have a letter? Well, he presented a letter that we had sent him uh, about not getting the COVID shot. The lady looked two sentences and said, go. She didn't want to deal with him. He was so so, uh, adamant. And they probably thought, oh, boy, we don't need this. You know, we're getting an hourly wage, you know. We don't have to put up with it. Go. And he says, and all you need to be going to the feast too. <laughs> now that's a Paul. I look at that guy and I'm like, there's Apostle Paul right there. Just tells him like it is and doesn't care. But so adamant that he's going to follow the truth. And he did. He made it here. And he was a blessing, I think, to everybody that talked to him. 
you know, talking to him drew an energy like a torch to kindling. I mean, it was just a, he was an amazing guy. And he got baptized, too, along with eight others. But, uh, but I pray this tabernacles, this past tabernacles, was a special blessing to you and your family that you've grown in knowledge and truth from being here, from the different things we did, the fun we had, the memories that were built in your children that they'll remember the rest of their lives because I can remember my first feast back in 1968. I remember it very well. It was such a, an unbelievable experience I'd never had before. They're going to remember these things. We're building memories. And for those who wavered about coming this year and failed to come at all, maybe for fear of high fuel prices or high prices, period, or whatever, that might have been their excuse. The message in the word is quit your indecisions. Stop wavering at the sight of the first roadblock and say like this man, I'm going to the feast and nothing's going to stop me. Your lack of faith is showing if it stops you. Find a way. Don't let little problems get in the way. Little excuses. As Winston Churchill said, when you're going through trials, keep going. He didn't say trials, but uh, uh, basically that's what it was. Don't stop. Don't slow down. Rev up your engine instead. Start putting Yahweh first in your life. Enough of this, well, maybe next year excuse. Come to the feast. We're commanded to. In Luke 9, when Yahshua called the fellow to follow him, not even the funeral of his father was grounds to excuse him from following Yahshua. Having one foot in the world doesn't cut it, doesn't cut it with Yahweh. That's why tabernacles were to leave the world behind, come out of the world. It's a pilgrim feast. We leave it. We, get, we come to a whole different experience. We're so locked in the world in this life, we don't even realize when we're, when we're in it that we're in it. We find a, the, the exact opposite. We find the contrast and, wow, what a difference. What a difference a feast is. We're training now for priestly positions in the kingdom. The feast and Sabbath will be part of Yahshua's kingdom. And the saints will be there doing them, teaching them. Yahshua is calling now. Take your position. Take your position and not taking reservations for tomorrow. Tomorrow may never come. He's looking for immediate faithfulness. When we are immersed, that is what we promised him. We're going to take hold of this covenant. And what this covenant says we're going to do. This is what I counsel people before baptism. You're in the covenant. You've got to do what the covenant says. You don't have a choice now. If you do, heavens forbid, you don't. But if you do, you're in a very bad way. A different life that began at that very point was when you got baptized. You now follow Yahshua in everything. It's not an end, it's a beginning. It's a beginning of a different life. So, may this be the last year for those feast delinquencies. May everyone heed Yahshua's call to come and worship him at the place where Yahweh places his name. Brethren, it's about your life and about your future. What more can I say? Hallelujah.